Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Campus Safety Voices podcast. My name is Amy Rock. Often touted as a way to curb vandalism and vaping while improving overall hallway safety, digital hall passes are used by thousands of schools across the country. Like with any technology, schools must weigh the benefits of the technology with the potential risks for its users. I spoke with Coben Zweifel Keegan, Managing Director of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, about what schools should consider when implementing these technologies and questions they should ask solutions providers about their products to ensure student privacy is upheld. Here's our discussion. Be sure to subscribe to Campus Safety's YouTube channel and like or leave a comment on our videos or subscribe to our Campus Safety Voices podcast on Apple and Spotify and leave a review. For safety and security purposes, I think most school administrators and school leaders would agree that it's a school's responsibility to know where students are when in school, not only for their own safety, but for the safety of everyone else in the building as well. And one way schools that have have done this historically is through hall passes. And most of our readers are likely from the generation where they just signed a piece of paper when they left and when they came back. But now there are technology-based options available that are being used by thousands of schools in the U.S., Uh, Can you just speak to these technologies a bit in general and how they tend to work as a whole? Yeah, certainly. I think we've started to see this shift towards kind of digital hall passes um, as something that uh, in theory reduces the friction of of all of those paper slips and everything. Um, I think there's a spectrum of what these technologies look like. Um, I mean, I think you can imagine a world where they are... um, where it functions almost like the Marauders map from Harry Potter, where you kind of have little dots walking around the school and um, you can see where everyone is at any given time. I don't think that's how these usually work. Um, Instead, it's uh, more focused on entry and exit, like saying, like authorization, just like a hall pass used to work, um, saying, uh, does this person have permission to be in this space? Um, I think you could also uh, engineer it so that uh, they are tied to um, access. Like if, if you if you secured every room, you could give people fobs that would only let them in if they had a, a hall pass. I don't think that's how it's working either. I think it's more focused usually on um, just receiving the proper authorization from a teacher. The student submits a request on the platform, teacher approves it, and then they have access to go um, into whichever space that they requested, whether that's a bathroom or the water fountain or the hallway um, or to a different um, uh, class for, for some other purpose. Um, so that seems to be how these have been built out. Okay, and it's schools that, that are choosing these solutions. What are, in your experience or people that you've spoken to, what are they saying are the main benefits of this from a safety and security perspective or what are the solutions providers saying are its main benefits? Yeah, I think schools and providers are really focused on um, efficiency and security in in looking at these solutions. Um, I think uh, schools are often persuaded by this argument that kind of a a uniform digital dashboard is simpler for teachers and for students to use than a paper-based system. In theory, it means maybe not interrupting class as much because you're, um, rather than having to literally interrupt the teacher and get a piece of paper signed, um, maybe the teacher can uh, kind of seamlessly use their iPad and uh, authorize the the transaction. 
during the course of their teaching. Um, but it sounds like there's kind of mixed experiences from students and teachers as to how effective, like how much of a friction reducer that is. Um, it kind of depends on what people are used to and, and how they're able to incorporate this new modality into their daily lives. Um, I think you also, of course, have, there's, there's more security, more accountability in a system like this. I think with paper, what was something that schools point to is that with paper records, you had a lot, you don't necessarily have any central system, right? Teachers are creating these records independently. And so it may be difficult to track in a, in a school where students aren't in a single room all day. Um, it would be difficult to track how many times a student, like if, if students are quote unquote abusing the privilege of being able to go out of the classroom, uh, if there's kind of what they seem to refer to as frequent flyers, if, there, if those people are, uh, it, it might be harder to identify those folks. And then of course, it'd be harder to identify when when vandalism and, set, and things like that happen. Um, it's harder to kind of track down exactly who was outside. It takes a little bit more legwork from the administrators than if it's already inside a, a centralized dashboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you mentioned vandalism, it made me think that it must be used as a force multiplier in a lot of situations for uh, schools investigating crime or anything like that. So just another kind of another layer um, to school safety and security. But obviously with that becomes privacy implications. Um, what are some privacy implica implications, excuse me, that surround these types of technologies and how might that impact schools and students? Yeah, so I think it's important to kind of, as with anything in digital privacy, it's important to kind of think about first principles and, and, and compare the benefits you're getting from a technology like this with uh, some of the risks uh, and potential harms to individuals. I think um, looking at some of these vendors, it, it seems like a lot of them are definitely on the up and up when it comes to their data privacy practices. They seem to have been they commit. They, they they claim to be compliant with FERPA. Uh, they claim to be um, to be certified to be um, uh, to have committed to some of the self regulatory rules, like the student privacy pledge, um, which kind of promises that like one of the things that it that means is that they're not taking information and, and selling it off to third parties, not using it for advertising purposes, things like that. So those kinds of risks are always out there with any technology that, they're, that data will be misused or won't be properly secured. Um, but uh, making sure that you're vetting companies properly, that they're making those public commitments so that um, they could then be enforceable by, um, by the US government. Um, that's an important first step. I think the other issues though kind of go to a broader context uh other privacy concerns here that the civil society has raised and that i think um speak to just the general trend um of of instituting more digital systems uh, rather than paper-based systems um one concern is that it sort of normalizes surveillance for uh for students um i think uh, you as you are focused on this world of of students that are expect expect to be watched all the time i think you find they will grow into people who expect to be uh, adults that expect to be watched and timed and and, uh, and kind of have this level of invasiveness in their lives that doesn't necessarily put them first as a autonomous individual um i think so having kind of people's movements limited and observed by kind of a an overseer is um, obviously part and parcel of what it means to be in school. Like the, you certainly are, uh, students are used to this. It, it, there's, 
at that time in your lives, you're used to, to uh, reporting to authorities. Um, but I think uh, there's, I, I just think the school districts should be really mindful of this and ask themselves whether that that's kind of the world they want to build, whether there are other available alternatives that might solve the same problems that they're looking for without kind of creating this sense of um, being watched all of the time and always and like having every minute uh, tracked and, mo and monitored. Um, and that kind of goes back to my point about um, returning to first principles. One core tenet of um, data privacy is autonomy. Um, we, I think, find ourselves generally in the policy community right now in a moment when we're trying to figure out that right balance between autonomy and safety when it comes to kids and youth. Um, COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which has been around for a while, um, is very focused on uh, parental consent, on parental control, um, and that's for kids under 13. But we're starting to see this, um, uh, some newer laws like the Age Appropriate Design Code in California that are more focused on empowering young people um, to make decisions around their own data privacy and kind of having that on some sort of sliding scale where as you get to a certain age, maybe it does make sense to empower people over their own data. Um, FERPA has always been focused when you are a student, your parents have um, authority over you. And then as you graduate, you you can um, exercise rights over that data. Um, but I wonder if the if the if it's going to be getting a little bit more complicated with these additional rules coming into play at, at the state level and possibly at the federal level um, as similar rules have been proposed here um, so i think it's just good to kind of consider that balance as you're building out this kind of digital infrastructure um, and uh, yeah i think administrators should ask themselves whether they are helping to create the next generation of kind of empowered digital citizens um, or creating more of a system that is, is more disempowering. Yeah, that's what's so hard about trying to find that balance is no matter where you try and draw the line or make it balance out, like you're, you're going to have someone that's not agreeing with you or liking how you're handling things. So I, I feel bad for people that have to make decisions like that because no matter what, you're going to have someone in your face upset about how you're handling something like that so um yeah exactly i don't envy school administrators jobs there's always a lot of stakeholders interests and at stake and there's a lot of um legitimate safety concerns and, and major issues mm -hmm. that they're dealing with all the time so um it's really tough <laughs> and we had, you had mentioned ferpa in general when it comes to student privacy and student data what are the most common ferpa violations yeah, and I'm not a, um, I'm not a, um, I am a student, I am a data privacy lawyer, but I'm not focused on student privacy, so I don't track um, uh, FERPA violations at a granular level all the time. Um, I think the, some of the more common violations are often the things that people don't expect um, to be where they're sort of writing a letter of recommendation and they forget that they shouldn't include information that would validate, that would be exposing the student's information uh, to a public entity. There's kind of simple, straightforward things like that. Um, what we're looking at here is more the kinds of violations that happen when vendors are involved. Um, FERPA applies to a lot of vendors because they're stepping in the shoes of the administrator. They're saying, they're, they're 
providing the service for the school district. And so um, they're subject to the same rules and kind of responsibilities that the that the district um, would otherwise be. So um, in those situations, I think uh, we see that it's kind of some of the, the standard um, privacy limitations that are important not to violate. So schools need to make sure that when they're talking to vendors, that they're really focused on exactly which types of information are going to be collected by the vendor, how that's going to be used, like what are the clear limits on the purposes for which that data is collected. Um, making sure, of course, that the vendor isn't planning to disclose that information to others, not to sell it, um, that it's going to be basically under the control of the school, but um, exercised through the vendor. Um, and that, uh, and there are, of course, exceptions to sharing under FERPA. But there, it, I think some of the um, self-regulatory codes, like the Student Privacy Pledge, go a little bit farther in saying, like, we actually won't share this data with anyone for any purpose, for like any behavioral advertising purpose, or maybe some other third-party purposes. Um, and then, of course, vetting uh, security is uh, security uh, kind of reasonable security violations are a common thread in all privacy cases, but um, also uh, in FERPA, um, making sure that vendors have uh, kind of committed to a set of uh, security practices that that meets uh, modern uh, requirements is really good. So things like multi-factor authentication is a good practice, uh, making sure that data is encrypted, that um, you have an understanding of where data will be stored and that it actually isn't like physically uh, safeguarded and all of the, all of those situations, all of those kinds of um, questions, um, uh, all of that's relevant to uh, kind of vetting, the process of vetting a vendor. Now, I, I this probably applies well beyond just students because with the pandemic so many people were at home but was student privacy significantly impacted during the pandemic you know when most were remote definitely and yeah exactly i think in, in some of the same ways that maybe workplace privacy was uh was affected but um uh, yeah it, differently than than in the issue like it's a it's a very different issue than um digital hall passes where you're kind of thinking about physical autonomy and like physical location and the ability to to exercise control over one's um, kind of lived experience when you're at school. I think what we saw um, in during the pandemic is obviously this shift towards um, more digital monitoring uh, in remote in the remote environment. So software solutions that included relatively invasive practices like video or audio monitoring, um, either for test taking or even things that are monitoring kind of awareness or um, attention uh, during class. Uh, things like that have become a lot more commonplace. Um, I think that that has certainly raised a lot of privacy issues um, across, across the community. Um, there's, uh, I, I've also seen civil society raising issues around um, the kind of tangential collection of information, like um, it, when a student's at home, um, the, uh, they're not alone often, right? And so um, by doing any kind of monitoring, it, you're increasing the chances that you're going to be collecting information about others that aren't that student um, and that you really don't have as much of a, an interest in collecting. Um, and so you might be finding, uh, you might find yourself in kind of possession of data about lots of other people. Um, and that's always kind of a, 
a red flag and a, and a concern um, when you're thinking about um, privacy best practices. And that has kind of a disproportionate impact on uh, people, on low income people, people of color, folks who are more and more likely to live uh, with more people in a room. Um, it becomes even more of a, of a concern that maybe you're you're surveilling kind of an entire household and not just um, the child's use for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my, my sister-in-law is a, a high school teacher and they, when they were remote, they weren't, didn't require students to have their cameras on, obviously, because everyone has a different situation going on at home and not everyone's comfortable with, with sharing that. That's understandable. And what you said also made me think of, we've covered um, social media and how like TikTok or whatever, there's young kids that are on it and they don't realize, but there's like self-identifiable stuff, you know, like in their room right. that has their name or where they live and it, it, it just creates another uh, a dangerous layer of giving away information that could harm them. Yeah, and so it's hard to navigate, right? Like I think I'm sure every every teacher, every district has approached this in their own ways and tried to figure out ways that kind of balance those interests. Um, I think sometimes it's great to know what the what the technical tools are available that are kind of privacy preserving. Like Zoom lets you uh, uh, blur your background or not have your camera on at all. Like having making sure that those are the defaults and that those technologies are implemented in a way that. Um, is as privacy preserving as possible um, is a good is a good practice. Mm -hmm. And for schools considering a solution, you know, to help them better track students when they leave the classroom, what should they consider when implementing these technologies, and what data protection information should they seek out from the platform to ensure student privacy is upheld? Yeah, I think the most important thing really uh, to consider is whether the platform commits to to using data that it collects only for the purposes of, of serving the school and improving the product that, that it's providing. Um, I think if a vendor can't make that commitment, it's a big red flag and that you, you need to make sure that you're um, vetting very closely uh, the purposes to which they're using information. Um, I think another theme that we're seeing from regulators right now is a focus on data minimization, on this idea that um, make sure that you're only collecting information that is appropriate, that is needed for the purposes for which you the, that you need it for. Um, so in this context, uh, yeah, what does this vendor really need? I think at a minimum, uh, from like a, if you're thinking of the minimum viable product here uh, for a hall pass, uh, they might need to know the student's name, their student ID number, um, uh, or maybe some proxy for the student ID number. And um, then uh, that I, I actually don't know beyond that, except they're going to be right. through the process of, um, uh, allowing students in and out of classrooms and stuff, they'll have this over time behavioral information um, that they'll have to collect and um, and then the, the school will be able to use that information about uh, the the students habits and, and behaviors, um, but making sure that um, that beyond that, uh, that you're kind of checking up make and asking that question like does uh, does this additional piece of information actually add value to the service um, that's an important uh, thing to follow up on when you're talking to these vendors. Yeah, and I'm from a curiosity perspective, I wonder if we were saying how teachers use these systems, I wonder if a lot of them are um, kind of integrated with other tools as well, because I know we've covered um, just saying how not relying on a, a technology or a system for only an emergency so that like mm. the staff or an administrator is familiar with how right. to use it. So it would be interesting 
to look into if a lot of these vendors, it's kind of like an add-on to their other technology offerings. I'm sure that's probably the case. Yeah, and I think that's speak like yeah, a technology a technology solution is only as frictionless as like people's ability to use it, right? So I know that teachers aren't always like everyone else; they are not necessarily prone to just jumping in and embracing a new change to how they've done things for a long time. So it's good to like make sure that the benefits are actually there for the users with whom you're focused on providing that value um and yeah that makes sense that you would want things that are kind of used in an everyday basis and not just in emergencies uh, to make sure people are familiar with the platform and there's i mean this is not just for safety i think a lot of the vendors focus on some of the other uh the, the ac other access control uh issues that arise throughout um a student's day and like the fact that um these kinds of systems, which are kind of ingrained onto the onto the uh, computers that uh, students have already from the school, that they might help students um, also kind of remember things. Like they would remember that they have a counselor appointment, that sort of thing. It can come up and remind you and automatically give you a hall pass instead of having to bother the teacher about something like that. So mm -hmm. that kind of thing, uh, yeah. That I think there's uh, certainly efficiencies there and. Um, I, but yeah, it's really good to, as with any um, digital technology, it's really good to focus in on the user experience and the kind of the design and think about how are we empowering users and making it actually serve the needs that they have. And that will really help adoption and, and make sure that people aren't, um, uh, don't feel like it's something that's uh, as invasive as it could be.